0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of how might we and I've got a first I have three guests with me this time so um, it'll be interesting how this pans out (laughs) The the title for this podcast is how might we go back to the future with leadership so with me today is Oakland McCulloch Jeff Hudson Searle and Douglas Lines so gentlemen in no particular order who would like to go first and introduce themselves to the lovely listeners. Standards. Well,
1: I'm a retired Lieutenant Colonel McCullough. I'm uh, over here in America. So across the pond there, as you guys would say, did 23 years in the army, retired a Lieutenant Colonel, have got about 40 years of leadership experience in one way or another. And recently wrote a book, Your Leadership Legacy, Becoming the Leader You Were Meant to Be. And, and I'm out on the speaking and speaking tours, doing some speaking, but but excited to be here with, with all three of you and uh, looking forward to talking about leadership.
0: Okay, lovely. Thank you very much. And oh, we'll go international then. So Douglas, you want to go next as our next international
2: guest? Thank, Thank you, Scott. As you can hear from my accent, um, clearly South African, living in, in the UK, educated in the US, and actually have a German driver's license. I think that confuses most. But, um, <laughs> really great to be here uh, and, and with you guys today. Uh, a, a conversation and a topic that I'm enormously passionate about. Equally like Oak, I have in excess of 20 years experience Uh, leading uh, businesses and teams have learned uh, the good the bad and the ugly along the way but I really believe that uh, with great leadership there's great opportunities for for the world that we live in and certainly going forward and it's that positivity that each and every one of us can bring in our lives not only in professional you know corporate life but equally in our personal lives and our communities. so really looking forward to the conversation Scott thank you You're welcome. Thank you. And Jeff.
3: Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Also a great pleasure to be here with both Douglas and Oak. I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation. My name is Jeff Hudson-Searle. I'm a 30-year executive serial business advisor for growth phase uh, companies, C-suite executive, private and publicly listed companies, both CEO, CMO and CCO. I've been an NXD for the last 13 years, mainly um, on and around regulation, technology and internet security. And I'm an author and thought leader of uh, my sixth book, which will be out 2022, which is called The Trust Paradigm. And as I said before, I do have a little bit of an exclaimer. Everything that, that I, I will be uh, discussing today with, with both Oak and Douglas, I, I must uh, make clear that these are my personal preferences and they are not of the preferences of any of the companies that I represent. Okay, thank you
0: very much. See, I only represent my one company, so I never have to put that disclaimer in. This is me. <laughs> <I am. laughs> it's just the way it is. It makes life so much more simple. So much more simple. Okay, guys, so we, we had a chat before we came uh, live on air. And when we were talking about the title it was, and we said we go back to the future, but back to the, back to the future for leadership. So, Oak, I'll go to you. Why do you think, well, what was it about that title that you liked and sort of what it was suggesting?
1: yeah, so I think that we have gotten away from producing leaders who understand what their job is, and it's not about them. I think we've got to get back to putting producing servant leaders who who understand that it's about the organization. It's about the people who work for that organization. And if they put the focus on that, then the organization will will do well, and they'll get their benefits in the end anyway. But if if you're becoming leaders, and I think at least here in America, we are producing leaders at all levels, in all professions, politicians, businessmen, military, we're producing leaders who have forgotten why they are leaders. And it's not about their title. It's not about the power that they get. It's not about the money they make. If that's why you're picking to be a leader, then go do something else, because you're going to be a horrible leader, as we see in the world right now. If you want to be a good leader, you got to. We got to get back. If we want things to get better in this world, we got to get back to producing leaders who understand that it's not about them; it's about the organization and the people. Okay, lovely. Thank you, Douglas. Would you like to come in on that?
2: Yeah, I think first of all, you know, I'm a firm believer that um, we live in an environment of of contextual change that's happening at a rate we cannot even begin to imagine. And so, this matter of contextual leadership is really profound for me, and I think coupled with that is I do not believe that the past is necessarily the proxy of of the future of leadership. I think there's aspects where we wanna take the best from the past, but be enormously curious about the future. And and, and, and I challenge leaders in, in every society, in every level of an organization, to really continue their journey of personal reimagination, because I don't think leadership is static anymore and and coupled with an enormous amount of curiosity uh, about the world that we're living in. So, yeah, enormously um, passionate in terms of of, of of going from that past world and the, the great learnings that Oaks spoke of. Use those, don't lose them, but bring new ones that complement and enhance this ever changing context we're operating in.
0: So, don't. don't- throw the bath balls out with the baby type thing. So Absolutely let's awesome. learn from the past and then say, okay, but the, when we learned leaders in the past, it was principles, but application was going to change because the world is changing at a pace. We never, I love the curiosity aspect. So I do think that we under, under milk or under egg, really the value of curiosity in what we do. Cause I think curiosity is the path to finding new ways of working working out what's working what's not working doing this but i think curiosity with care absolutely yeah so it's not about challenging jeff would you like to come in on anything that was mentioned
3: yeah look i i can't disagree you know with my colleagues whatsoever i think we do need to get back into back to the future and more importantly the time machine on a few issues i'd like to i'd like to talk about some of those issues you know we talked about principles we've talked about you know accountability i mean if we go back in history You know, leadership was more passionate 20 years ago. Right. You know, you've got a CEO at the top of the tree with his people or her people. And you had a lot more passion. You had a lot more care. You you had value, a valued system. Okay, in the organization, which which we, we're not seeing too much today. And as a Douglas quite touched on, you know, we're we're in an ever rating change of pace. Change is constant. This is not a cycle or an event that we're de- describing right now. It this is constant, right? And that's changing people's human behaviors. But unless we get back to some basic principles, you know, around leadership, and then you can get you can you can actually get hold of any major re- piece of research, whether it's Dukes University. Duke University, whether it's PwC, whether it's McKinsey, I tell you that we are failing in leadership. Okay, we're failing because we've got. A, there are many factors that that go around that. I mean, most of the discussion points that we're hearing right now is the CEO can't do it on his or her own. That we need multiple CEOs in an organization to actually affect true change that can actually be applied to the, to a business that can actually drive growth and performance, number one. Uh, number two is, you know, you talked, um, Douglas talked a little bit about care. Well, they've got a great belief of that. I mean, we've got to start listening more. Uh, we've got to have, we've got to be more empathetic. We've got to start understanding more, but we're not seeing that. We did have that 20 years ago. We had that in leadership twenty years ago because that was the mantra. The mantra is, you know, you work for a company and you're not leaving after twelve months. You're not leaving after because of the great resign. You're you are a part of this organization and you're gonna work with this organization and you're gonna get promoted and eventually you're gonna get your gold watch after so many years and you'll retire and have a nice life. Now you're lucky if you have three years in a in a a c-suite executive within an organization and then suddenly you got changed in fact i've seen it in some large corporates where they're changing divisional leadership every nine months well how do you expect to make executional change and, and performance and, and work on things like KPIs and and actually deliver growth if you've got a constant change in leadership and then with it, a constant change in people. So I think there is an awful lot here that we needed to unpack. But I think fundamentally, there are some major flaws over, over human behavior here. My human behavior in leadership as well and, it, and leadership's ability to actually be accountable and actually execute.
0: Okay, so accountability and execution, because a lot of times you see all the stuff, it's it's easy in the news now is every time you sort of pick up, I was going to say pick up a newspaper who does that or see the newspaper online, whatever we do now is about this has happened, uh, this has happened, this is an apology from this company for this, an apology from a company for that behaviour and things that they've done, they just seem to be constantly coming and some of the defence is that the senior management team said I didn't know, I didn't know this was happening in my business
3: there is that side but the other side that i touched on was passion where is the passion that we had you know in entrepreneurs you know you see passion because you know they will live and breathe their business in corporate there are very few people that i can think of where i can see i see sheer tenacity sheer determination sheer passion passion not just for the business passion for their people.
1: yeah I I would agree with you Jeff but I I, want to go back to one of the things Scott just said about responsibility I mean we have we have gotten to a point where people at all levels are saying not my responsibility (laughs) really as a leader at least as what I've learned as a leader I can give away all the authority I want I can give you all the authority to do whatever you want all the resources to do it but in the end whether it fails or or is successful is on me my name's still on the blame line if i'm a leader and we have gotten to the point now where nobody is willing to take responsibility it's all about it's not my responsibility because we're all they're all so worried about getting to their next level getting their next promotion getting their next paycheck pay raise that they they're they're afraid to take responsibility for things that don't go well, but that, that's what leaders do. Leaders are supposed to take the responsibility, whether your unit, your organization, your company, your whatever you're leading does well or not, you own it, good, bad, or ugly, if you're the leader. And we gotta get back to people do, doing that. And, I, you know, and I, I grew up in the army mostly, And as a leader. And I had a boss who retired a four-star general who said to me one day when he was a colonel and I was a captain, he said, Oak, if you didn't make a mistake today, you probably didn't do anything. And, And he said, I don't care if you made a mistake. He said, nobody in the world is perfect. I keep trying to convince my wife that I'm perfect, but she's not buying it. But nobody in the world is perfect. And that's what he said. He said, I don't care if you made a mistake. What I care about is what did you do after you made the mistake? Did you try to hide it? Did you blame somebody else? Or did you walk into my office and say, hey boss, I messed up, here's how we're gonna fix it. And if you do that, then okay, let's go fix it. I mean, we gotta get back to that kind of mentality.
2: I think, you know, Scott and and Oak and Jeff, one of the things that I'm very passionate about is is diversity within leadership and leadership teams. What do I mean by that? Well, when you look at a lot of C-suite appointments, especially in big corporations, they tend to recruit leaders from the same industry, from competitors, and I think you know, McKinsey did a survey about a year ago and said, well, out of all the the C-suite's they interviewed, 86% of them felt that they did not have the right mixture of leaders on their team. And so I keep questioning this this this, and I call it dominant industry logic that says, you know what, I'm in the motor manufacturing industry, I need to get a motor manufacturing executive. And I want to challenge that because I fundamentally believe that the ability to cross-pollinate from different industries with a different skill set you know, has got such richness in it. I'll give you a real example. I've been in financial services and a senior banking executive for many years. Some of my best leaders had spent time in the military and why was that? Because they had incredible discipline, incredible focus and that was as a banker to have that skill set is incredible. So. For me, you know, I'm really passionate about saying, how do we change the world we live in? Because not only does it bring a different perspective when leaders come from different um, industries or or, or experiences, but it brings about something in terms of innovation. And I think when I look at most companies around the world, you know, I I think most of them are running, you know, run the business or grow the business. Are are there ones that are really transforming the business? You know, I was reading an article today about the best decision that Steve Jobs ever made in Apple. The best decision Steve Jobs made was he actually said, I'm going to kill the iPod. I know I'm going to kill it because I'm going to launch the iPhone. And he had a great business model. He was doing fantastically well with Apple, but the iPhone took them into a different stratosphere in terms of the the global expansion. So you've got to, as leaders, and with that diverse thinking, be able to disrupt yourself. And to disrupt yourself, sometimes you have to see the world differently. And so bringing, and and Jeff, you mentioned right at the beginning, bringing skill sets from very different vantage points create something unique in chemistry and we don't see that often enough whether it is in corporate life whether it is in uh, small medium-sized businesses whether it's in i'm sure in the military or government departments and that's something we should be looking at dynamically going forward to change so i i i,
3: I concur completely with what you said i think for me if you start looking at the word accountability responsibility right I'm afraid I I have to come back to the word trust because if you're not a responsible leader and if you're a leader without accountability, how do you expect to lead others? And more importantly, how do you expect people to follow you? Look, you know, if you start looking at trust and you start looking at leadership trust, right? You know, you're talking about everything that really evolves around incremental value, accelerated growth, enhanced innovation, improved collaboration, you know, stronger partnering, of course, better execution across everything you're doing, but most importantly, heightened loyalty. How do you yeah. expect to lead a, a lead a business if you don't have trust?
1: Hmm. Trust is so huge. And I think, you know, that's, that goes back to the culture. And, it, you know, I, I had this discussion the other day with with a young young ROTC cadet because in my day job, i recruit for Army ROTC here in the United States to produce the next level of officers. And I, and I had this conversation with, with him and I was, we were talking about this very subject. And I said, you, to build that, the two things that a leader is most responsible for, at least in my opinion, having a vision where you want this organization to be a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, even if you're not gonna be around. And number two, building the culture of the organization and culture, although it will happen, If you don't do anything that's not the culture you generally want if you want the culture that you want you're going to have to invest some time energy money training to get there and i think that goes along with what jeff is saying if you don't have the right culture where and again part of that is being a servant leader if you're a servant leader with the right culture your people are going to trust you because you're doing the right things you're taking care of them you've put their their wishes and and needs and desires ahead of your own and if you do that i can just tell you in in my experience being in the army if you if you show people that that they can trust you and that you got their best interest they'll do anything you ask them to do including charge a machine gun nest if that's what you want them to do
2: yeah Okay, I think you're right, and you know, just when what, what was coming to mind when you were talking there was something that I've, you know, really indoctrinated over many years is a leader that's vision-led and values-driven, and part of that, and, and part of that is trust, and embedded in that culture, it's about lighting the fire in people's hearts, not under their butts, and and to me, that's something we, you know, whether you're a leader in a in a in a in a, in a, in a local community or an organisation, doesn't really matter. It's the same skill set so that you do. And it's amazing when you see it in people's eyes, when you light up their heart in terms of that inspiration. And, you know, my, my alumni university in the US, Duke University, spoke of this combination of IQ, EQ, and DQ. And um, we know what IQ and EQ are, but DQ is decency quotient. And so as leaders that, and Jeff mentioned earlier, this empathy of deeply listening, but inspiring um, to do that. But but I think without doubt, we all agree that trust is the foundation. I do recall many uh, years ago, there was a, a wonderful video clip on YouTube with the late Colin Powell, who stood up and spoke about uh, leadership. And the one thing he kept on re-emphasizing, and I'll never forget this, was building the trust with the troops. And without that trust, you cannot lead. And and, he, and you could see that it, it, uh, it wasn't lip service. He actually I'm sure you would know this. He was he was in the he was in the front lines with those troops on many occasions. I'm sure,
1: absolutely. But it,
2: but but also the ability to demonstrate as a leader that there are times when you need to be in the front line with the team. That if something goes horribly wrong, that you're the one that takes the full accountability. When things go right, you give them the credit. And so there's times as a leader where you need to be on the field, but you know, and then pivot back to the the top of the hill to to see the landscape and. Knowing your when your people see that, they will follow you, as you rightly said, they'll follow you wherever you go,
3: and you inspire them. I
2: I think you said some very key points there,
3: Douglas, in in particular around empathy. There's a very good book called Creative Confidence, and it's by Tom and David Kelly, who were the founders of IDEO, and they won awards for this book. And what it really talks about is having, the reason why it's called Creative Confidence is because leadership allowing the people to actually be creative, be innovative. I don't really want to talk about COVID-19, but I will talk about it as an event. What one of, one of the biggest most damaging things that we had in business globally and internationally during this event was the fact that people were isolated, people were lonely, people were suffering from mental health. They didn't so you talk about, you know, the McKinsey 86% issue. I, we, IBM, did, did, a, did a trust report back in 2020. And we used Datapad to, to do some really interesting work. That report showed that 69% of all people surveyed within the report didn't trust their line manager and didn't actually trust their CEO. And that was before the event. To think about all of the lack of creativity and lack of innovation before the event took place.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I want to, qu- to just briefly quote you something from the book, which is on page 90, which I really love. And it talks about empathy. It says, empathy means challenging your preconceived ideas and setting aside your sense of what you think is true in order to learn what actually is true to me that reson- that's always that particular quote from that particular book has always resonated with me right always resonated because we've got to start getting back to the, what i said earlier listening empathy understanding you could question about how leadership actually has communicated with their people and what they should be doing in order to communicate with their people because all of that Falls, falls immediately into one of the largest, uh, single most biggest problems in the world today, and that's trust.
0: Yeah, I want to go back to what Douglas said, if if you don't mind, and I think what's in, and it comes back to what you said there to, about the empathy, and the, and it is about and it goes back to what um, Oak says as well about servant leadership. I think one of the keys about leadership is to be selfless. That's one of the key traits that you can do. So, in the trust model, I've I've developed, which is like research around trust from various different people and my experiences from my time in the prison service is, if if you are, people always look at motives. So, if you are if you are motivated by your personal gain over asking people to do something, the chances of them actually wanting to do it for you is minimal. If they can see that you're motivated by the greater good, whatever that might be, then that's going to help people follow that because they say, yeah, it might be a bad decision, but There's no ulterior motive. There's no hidden agenda here. They're not doing it just to get something for themselves. So I think that selflessness is important. And what you said, Jeff, about the communication. And one of the key things in the coaching program I've got is just an activity, and it's called Me, Myself, and I. How many conversations do you have or emails do you receive where the word I permeates the conversation? what that is demonstrating that this person is talking and looking at seeing things and asking from a personal perspective. So I would like you to do this. You're doing it for you instead of saying to somebody, okay, what do you want to achieve? How can we support you getting there? What skills do we, can we help you develop And out of what we've got? What could I delegate to you that's going to help you rather than that? We're a bit busy. I've got this job. I would like you to do that. That whole conversation piece how we actually approach and communicate says to somebody i'm trying to do it to help you or i'm doing it to help me And i think if we really look so the emails you get the in the email conversations and read how many times are you asking people to do something to help you and it goes totally against that self so, and so it becomes it becomes self-focused rather than other focus i think is one of the key that and emotions the emotional connection are, i think are the two biggest drivers for trust and we concentrate on the other ones, which is our capabilities, our credibility and our believability. Because they're easy. You can put your things up on the wall. You can go to university. You can get your degrees. You can do this and do that. And, and it comes back to what you were saying, Douglas, about I can work for you because I've demonstrated I can, I've can. i done this in an industry similar to yours, So I can slip in and do that. And it's just going to be easy. So there's, there's no, it's, I think in some ways, those decisions are driven by fear. Fear of not taking a risk. But you've got Edward De Bono who sadly passed away a couple of years ago. He went, to, he, was in a, he went to a conversation in, I think he was involved in a conference with someone like Shell. And he asked a question like a beginner, increased productivity in their wells. And I think it was something like 300% by just asking one question because he didn't work in the industry. So he was curious and said, why'd you do that? Can we do it this way? And somebody says, never thought of that. Hang on a minute. Yes, we can. Let's let's try it. Let's experiment it. Three hundred. I think it was something like three hundred percent increase in productivity per well. From that, be willing to ask questions like a beginner. I
1: I absolutely agree, and and I always emphasize that leadership is leadership. It doesn't matter where you learned it, doesn't matter where you practiced it. If you're a leader, you can lead any organization. Now, there's a learning curve. I got it. You do got to learn some things. Whatever, but. But as Douglas says, I, I'm a firm believer that you can take people from outside and bring them in, and not not only are you now using their unique experience and knowledge, but they're looking at it from a different different setup through a set of eyes that that don't know exactly what should be happening. So they like you're saying, Scott, they 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 can ask those simple questions because they don't know. And you know, one of the things that I'm i believe in as a leader that I always do is when I first take over an organization, I just go out and start walking around talking to people and start asking those questions. So what what is it you do? Why do you do it that way? Have we always done it that way? Or is there a better way that you can think of that we can do it that might make your job easier? If you start asking those questions, you get a couple of things happen. Number one, the people in your organization say, hey, The boss came down and actually asked me some questions. He may actually care about what I think about. Number two, they start feeling like they're a valued member of the organization. And number three is that you might hit that, like you're saying, Scott, you might hit that one question that then changes the way we do everything in that organization. Because there may be a better way to do it. Because the problem that we have in our organizations is the same problem we have in us as people. Organizations have a mental have a mental memory, just like people do. And we do things because we've always done them that way. I hate that term. If anybody ever tells me when I ask them, why do you do it that way? And they tell me because that's the way we've always done them, done it. I just want to reach out and just choke them. <laughs> what, what a horrible answer. Tell me that that's the way we've always done it because it works or that we've tried other things and this is the best way we've come up with. I got that. But just telling me that that's the way we've always done it, don't waste my time. I don't want to hear that. That's just being lazy because that's the way we've always done it. So if you bring in new eyes, new people, not afraid to take chances, take a risk, you know, as as Rommel said, you know, who's one of my heroes, Field Marshal Rommel, he said, you got to know the difference between a risk and a gamble, a risk you can recover from if it doesn't work a gamble, you're done. So, you know, you got to know that difference. But if we got to take, be willing to take those risks, so that we can bring in that fresh blood, those fresh eyes, ask those good questions, like Scott said. And if we do that, then, then along with building the trust and the culture and taking care of people, then I think you know we're, we're, we are doing the right things at that point. And the sky is the limit of what we can do. I think there's another point here. And at the beginning,
3: Douglas talked about the pace of change and, and as I said, I think Change is constant now. You know, it's 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 constant, which also then states that leadership needs a reinvention. Okay, uh, and one of the things that that command and control that we used to have in leadership is over. Those days are over. They're long gone. And I think that culture, which uh, Oak talks about, is incredibly important because when we start talking about culture, we've got to start thinking inclusion. That the little guy or the little girl at the back of the room may have a voice, may have something incredibly important to say. We need to, we need to listen. We need to empower them. We need to bring them in because they need to be included. And the, the, one of the big problems with the Great Resign is because nobody wants to even think about inclusion. It's back to that I, Scott, that you said earlier, me, myself, scenario. No, it's got to be about we, us, on that journey, on that path. And culture is an important part of all organizational matters today, and particularly with leadership. But it's more importantly that you practice this. It's not something that's reserved for the C-drive and for the shelf. It's got to be a living, breathing subject matter that people... Really? But, and, and it affects behavior because it's all about... You know, it's all about, let's say, personality trait. But it's all about, I mean, trust is, is an output of behaviour. It's how we behave. I mean, everyone's now talking about ethics and we're talking about morals. I've never stopped talking about ethics and morals within, corporation, within corporate, right? You know, why are we now starting to talk about it now? You know, is it because, you know, antitrust laws, they, have they just been made policy, you know, in 2022? No, they've been around forever. But the fact is culture by main boards, boards of directors from the top down and the bottom up have got to be exercised. And the only way to do that is if they're living and breathing with the organisation. You start looking at businesses that have adopted culture, number one, and have got a a very strong emphasis on within the organisation, how you behave the sort of people they hire the sort of people that that are on a uh, on a trajectory for growth and change and development are the the sort of people that have got a future they don't they're not interested in the great resign because there's purpose they get out of bed in the morning it's not just for a paycheck as oak indicated too this is this is about You know i'm a part of something i want to be a part of greatness i'm being a part of 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 something here today i'm passionate and about what i do i love what i do and and more importantly who i work with now 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 that (laughs) needs to be considered and i think you know like i said leadership i said earlier leadership is becoming impossible for some and and douglas you you quoted those statistics, they're not wrong, they're right in every shape and form. Leadership needs to be reinvented, reinvented. authority needs to be reinvented, otherwise corporations are gonna to
2: come to a very uh, um, expensive ending. Jeff, I think um, as you were talking there, I mean, it came to mind and you know, I think all of us in our journey so far in life, we, we've come across good leaders, great leaders, um, poor leaders, and I've always seen a common trait in a great leader as having the combination of intelligence but wisdom. And 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 what does that mean? So intelligence means maybe asking ten smart questions. Wisdom goes up a, a couple of notches because wisdom is asking one deeply refined question. And coming back to to the, the 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 importance of asking a a really deeply refined question to to get to that level of thinking of, of deep wisdom is and, and listening and empathy, Jeff, that you mentioned about is this philosophy I really believe in called contextual leadership and within contextual leadership is the world that's going on around us. But within that is I find that great leaders have superb self-awareness. They appreciate the impact they have on others and how they can influence others in 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 a positive way. And so that's something for me that is 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 a, is a real journey, of which I'm curious on, around always improving one's understanding and the curiosity of the world around us and what's happening around us, but equally knowing where I am, take myself out of that situation, see it for what it is, and the ability to go back into that complex world that's changing and to lead in that complex world in a manner which is values-driven and, and vision-led. And so I think this, this combination of, of deep wisdom with self-awareness and of course, the trust, the, the harm, moral fiber, et cetera, et cetera, you know, becoming the bedrocks of, of where we're going to, just so, you know, something quirky that when I mean, you were talking about Dave Kelly, and you know, I love his YouTube video and Dr. Doug Deets on, on that, uh, if anybody wants to ever see it, it's creative confidence, just go to YouTube. But, but it's actually been proven that as we grow in life, is that children at the youngest age are the most curious and the most creative. And our education and formal life that we start to embark on as we go through schooling and university takes away that creative confidence that Dave Kelly speaks of. And so it's somehow you've got to get that territory back to to think like a five-year-old and be curious like a five-year-old and ask a, a, a really ridiculous question that nobody's asking. Because I can tell you now, Elon Musk does it. You know, Steve Jobs in his heyday did it. These great innovators um, and leaders, you know, did it in their in their day. They had other quirks as well, but but that's something I think that is also for all of us to to appreciate in ourselves. What does it mean to, to, to oneself?
0: Can and I pick can up a you... couple points there? One other, well, there's several. One is I think one of the greatest unlocked things that we have in an organisation is the collective genius of the people who work
1: there. Absolutely.
0: And it's about how do we unlock that? Now I come from, I love appreciative inquiry. And I think that's definitely a model of helping unlock that because it's, it's curiosity and in, inquiry, but we're working on strengths. Mm-hmm. What are we good at? What's valuable? How can we contribute? And so those types of things are, they, again, it's asking questions that are generative, not negative in their context. So they're, they're designed to create generative thinking and, and generate solutions. And go back, we said about that genius. There was a, I can't remember the name of the, the guy. He was, uh, he was asked, I think, by NASA to create a test in the 60s, 50s and 60s, for them to, because to, they were solving problems we didn't even know they had when they were trying <laughs> to put a man on the moon. So I don't know what you're going to try and solve yet, because we, we don't know what problems we're going to come across, but we need people who can solve problems we don't even know we've got. And it goes back to that, having that creative thinking. And he did this test, and they used it, and it was very successful in, in selecting the right type of people. And he said, it's really simple. So he did the test, and he did a longevity study. Five-year-olds, 98% of five-year-olds passed at creative genius level. By the time these same people got to, I think it was, I can never quite remember the figures here to be exact, but they got to about 17 or 14, and the percentage had gone down to about 17%. And then he gave it to a group of adults, average age of about 31. Creative genius, the people who passed at creative genius level was 2%. And I think it goes back to what you say, Douglas, and what you're saying, Oak, about that, that, that learned memory and the learned way of doing stuff. And we have people from the same industry because it creates the it creates same type of thinking, which doesn't that. And we all are creative. Everyone. I think we have a very narrow definition of creativity as well. We think creative is about arts and science and music. And that, that's a part of creative. That's expressing yourself through music. But we are all creative because if you can imagine, you can create and we can imagine.
1: I, I would agree, Scott. And, and I, you know, I had a, I had a boss who retired a four-star general who so obviously way smarter than I am, but he, he used to tell me, and it goes, goes into getting the ideas out of the people that like, like Jeff said, you know, we're not using the entire organization's experience, their knowledge, their creativity. And he always used to tell me, Oh, a good idea is a good idea. Whether it comes from a private the lowest ranking person in your organization or a general and then he'd say by the way a bad idea is a bad idea whether it comes from a private or a general the highest ranking person in the organization and so what he was trying to tell me was use everybody in your organization when you have a chance and so you know one of the things that i i'm adamant about when i'm in charge of an organization if i have time if i got an issue i've got an idea i've got something that i'm trying to figure out or come up with a better way to do things. I call all my junior leaders together. And if I have time and the ability, I'll call my entire organization if it's small enough. And I'll say, okay, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's what we're trying to do. Here's the the problem we as an organization have. Throw me some ideas of how we can fix this, how we can do it better, how we can change it. And then, you know, one of the things that I figured out over the years of doing that is that I'll take a little bit of this person's idea and maybe a little bit of that person's idea and a little bit of that one. And then I'll throw some of my stuff in there. And we actually come up with a good solution. And the the key to that is that when we do that, it's no longer Colonel McCullough's solution or Jeff's solution or Douglas's solution. It's our solution. We all got skin in the game now. We all can't help come up with this solution. So let's work really hard to make it work. And I've I've found that over the years, that's that's always worked best for me when when I was in a leadership position to to dig into that experience and that knowledge of everybody in the organization, rather than just use my experience and my knowledge.
2: It's quite interesting because as you were talking there, I was connecting the dots in my mind about what you were, you were speaking of there in that innovation example and design thinking. And again, you know, Dave Kelly's is the, the king of design thinking. And, 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 and this whole analogy of empathy, which is a, the beginning stages of design thinking is empathy mapping, getting everybody's views and perspectives into the room and then align a creative environment and using post-its and Lego and who knows what else to solve the solution together. And it's actually in a way Scott is like going back to being a five-year-old, I've actually been part of an innovation session where at the end of the day we 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 actually use Lego to, to present back to the group, you know, what is it that we propose as a new business model in this industry? And I saw executives of 40, 50 years old who hadn't touched Lego in 30 years, you know, couldn't stop with it at the end of the day. And and it's sometimes you've just got to break free of the stigmas and 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 what's it, what everybody has to be seen to be looked like as leaders. We can. You know, it's important to show your vulnerability as a leader, and and again, you know that whole philosophy of the sum of the whole is greater than the sum of the digits. You know, is is always so powerful, and and you hit it, you hit it, you hit the nail on the head Oak, with that analogy.
3: I I like that what you've just said, Douglas, and that reminds me when I went to IDEO's office actually and uh, playing around with the Lego bricks, right? And, <laughs> and but I think when you start talking about creative. Creativity, and in particular, Dave Kelly's and Tom Kelly's book around creative confidence, which when I read it back in its day, really inspired me. I think we have got a problem, and I think the problem is not on the creativity side. It's actually on the confidence side, and I think that the cost of confidence, right, is the big, and in the last two years, 24 months, I say that that cost has gone up even further because the erosion of confidence makes trust way more important right in the, in the whole whole scheme of things we need to necessitate trust and the trust multiplier which which I've always spoken about uh, and that action to be more effective is about rebuilding trust right you know the, the whole the, the whole nine yards and and if we don't the cost <laughs> becomes even greater so from where I'm standing. You know, I'm talking about that person, Oak, in the room, at the back of the room, who never gets noticed. He's putting his hand up and just yeah. no, no, not, not even have the ability to be able to ask a question to senior leadership, right? Has to go through several tiers, and they're never heard, right? You understand? Or, or the ability where you're working remotely, and there is a lack of creativity, but they're sitting behind a screen so again, they, even, even middle tier management, they don't wanna speak out because they're not confident enough that they're gonna be heard or understood. And then by the time it gets all of that mishmash, gets convoluted to senior management, and then goes to board, it's no big surprise that board are uninspired, right? Because there's a lack of engagement, but there's a lack of engagement because there's a lack of confidence.
0: I think going back to that ability to engage. Yeah, if you can say to somebody, you can pull people in, like you've done, and pull people into a meeting, which is cool, and say, "I want your opinions." But if you've never, or rarely, in your day-to-day thing, enabled that to happen, it's not going to all of a sudden happen because you're in a meeting. You're asking people to speak up.
1: Absolutely. So I think I think that's why you got to be out there. Leaders have to get out there and talk to people. I mean, if you don't do that. On a, on a semi-regular basis as often as you can, then you're right, Scott. It, it's just words then, it's not action. It's not, not nobody trusts you that you're actually, you care.
3: And, and just one more on that. I agree wholeheartedly with that oak. And I remember when I was the chief exec of a public listed company, I used to do the coffee run. And it was I said to the secretary, no, I'll get my own coffee. I go to the coffee machine, pull my coffee, go around the whole floors and office areas, I talked to people and they were shocked that I had actually spoken to them. Yeah. Even more so, I'd go out to the to the county offices. I'd go doing exactly the same, right? And I had an open door. By the way, I also had an open door policy. Absolutely. Anybody could come into my office at any time. I would stop work for them, sit them down, start to listen and understand what's yeah. going on. Sorry, Douglas, I, I, I wanted to say that, but it was... I think. I think that that needs to be more apparent but you need a higher level of emotional intelligence in order to do that because somebody that has no emotional intelligence more on the iq academia side you'll find the office will be closed and they'll be looking at the spreadsheets you know that right the wisdom intelligence is making the right decisions Douglas you know that right it's making the right decisions you could actually say that with some of the things that we've talked around listening empathy understanding communication could fall within spiritual intelligence but you're never going to get to trust if you can't actually encapsulate or integrate those those intelligence practices into human behavior right
1: yeah. so important i agree so, sorry i cut you off scott <laughs>
0: So I'm, I'm just a host, that's fine. So people, <laughs> you know,
1: what people say
0: is usually far more important than what I've so, I think it goes back to Oak and what you said, Doug, and I quite liked what you said, Douglas, about that. Uh, so when I was in the prison service, every time you walked onto a landing, you were never sure what it's going to be like. Yeah. Every day was different. So you couldn't be the same. So I think in those environments, what you really learn, what you really learn is that dynamic assessing.
2: Mm.
0: What is this like compared to what it was like yesterday? What is this lad I'm talking to now? What was he like yesterday? Is there a difference? Do I need to alter how and what I'm saying to him to gain that influence over this person so that he can comply with the instructions voluntarily and willingly? As you said, some of the things you do is there's a machine gun post over there. Somebody's shooting us. Do you mind going and stopping them, please? They've been very naughty. You're asking people to do some real high risk um, situations that are life-threatening. So it, again in the prisons when you're working that sort of environment is not not as high risk as uh, running a machine gun but like every day was slightly different. Yeah. So I would um,
1: say, I would argue on a, on a day-to-day basis your that job is much more difficult than most of us in the military. But anyway. <laughs> but not probably not
0: they, they, we do have some programs over here with the prisons most of it would be us drinking tea having a chat and somebody walking in every now and again. The reality of it is it's completely different to what people say but yes you walk in You're on a land of 70 people. You're unlocking them. um, And you're coming coming to go and get your breakfast, go and get your dinner, whatever it is, go to work. And you've got somebody who's day one into a life sentence and you've got somebody who's in day 15 of a 30-day sentence next to each other. So you can't be the same with those two people to get that compliance and to get that. And they've got to... It is about that calibration. I call it calibration. Mm. Can we calibrate in the moment with what we're trying to achieve? Where are we? And then being able to read, what am I doing now? And are these actions helping me or hindering this event? And what do I need to do different to create a different outcome? So it really has been quite attuned to looking at this person. Are they reacting the way I expected to? If not, why not? Because they normally do. Okay, maybe they might have had some, of, and we didn't know, because you haven't been off for a while. Well. Maybe he's been told his mum's just died or something. He's been refused access to, he wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. And then you're in the morning, going, morning. And he's he's not in the morning. He's not having a good day. So you've got to really quickly sort of do that analysis and that sort of live dynamic assessing in that situation. And then I'm in it. What influence am I creating in this situation? Am I helping or hindering? And I think that goes back to what you were saying, Douglas, having that that real intuition and that, that fine awareness of impact. And if you go into supermarkets or shopping malls, you can see where generally we don't have it because what we do is we get focused on what we want, our targets. Like I want to go and get the, 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 the milk or I'm going to go get the, the, the meat or the food I want. And we just go towards where we're going. And we force other people to get out of our way because we're not aware of what they're trying to do in that environment. Just watch people in a supermarket and see how yeah. enclosed in our little environments we are. We don't really look at the potential impact of our actions. And I think sometimes that's the same with us when we're in work and we're leading people. If we can just create that, help people create that sort of looking outside and saying, okay, I want to get there, but this person's going across there. if I do that, I'm going to stop them. So I can just wait, let them go, and I can go. And therefore, I'm working effectively with that person, aware of where they're going, and I'm not interfering in that,
2: but I'm still achieving my goal. So I just thought I'd add that in. Scott, just I want to ask you a question if you don't mind. We'll reverse the roles here. Let's, let's make it uh, fun. I would think also in that environment, which is enormously complex, probably uh, I agree with Oak, it's, it's probably a lot more complex than, than what most people face and most leaders face is the importance of, of composure and not reacting too quickly. And because sometimes human beings and as leaders, we we, we can, you know, react quickly and certainly if your buttons are pushed, if it's a, a sensitive topic. But, you know, one thing that is a great trait in a leader is the ability to have composure, to assess the situation and then to deal the situation. And I would think that's something that you've developed in that approach every morning when you walk in there is to expect the unexpected, but to compose yourself and then, you know, go through that process in your mind of how to approach an individual or a community of people, but probably in your case, I would think you even more, you even more developed than, than most leaders because of just that, the complexity of that environment.
0: Yeah, I think it gives you that opportunity to really, and I think it and the thing goes back to what we're all saying about that self-awareness and to be a good leader, because there are people in that position who wouldn't be flexible, who didn't react, who didn't stop, maybe not aware of that awareness and the impact So the environment gives you the opportunity to raise your level of awareness, to raise those skills, but it's still whether you choose to or have the capacity
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and the curiosity to actually to develop and adapt within it. I still think it's a personal choice. There is the option. And I've seen people who worked in prisons and they were, they were, that's it, the rules on, and there's, there's no flexibility with them at all. And I've seen people who work and they, they have a massively adaptive in the way they work and they're highly effective. So I think the, the, the environment provides the opportunity. It's down to the individual's capabilities, capacities, and willingness to whether to take that on board and to then uh, develop on that, which comes back to what you're saying about being that, and I think, Jeff as well, that high, heightened le- level of awareness and wisdom mm-hmm. and then do and then sort of develop from that.
3: The heightened level of, of wisdom, for sure, right? But it's also, you, you know, you're not going to get to loyalty with others, unless you provide inclusion.
0: No, and I, I found the most effective way when I was working with prisoners is to say, get them on your board in the journey, because it's not about me telling them what to do, because you've got rules, you've got regulations. You can tell them, you can tell them all day if you wanted to, and it's fine. You would probably get a level of compliance and you do get a level of compliance, but really the British, the British legal system, our whole judicial system actually sits on that concept of cooperation. It doesn't sit on a concept of authority and power. It really does sit on cloak. Because you think about it, you're working on a landing. When I was at Belmarsh, I think we had something like 11 staff and 200 and 300 prisoners, 250 prisoners and 11 staff. Yeah. And you've got gates, you've got processes, you've got procedures, don't have guns, we
3: don't hold guns. What we had was when I first started, we had a, we had a wooden stick. Just for the record, I mean, Douglas and Oak probably are not aware of uh, Belmarsh. Do you want to explain what Belmarsh is? Because it's a very high security prison.
0: It's unusual in a high security prison because it also does what we call local stuff as well. So there's about, I think from memory, about eight high security prisons. So they they hold the high risk. So there's special units within all of them that are designed to do that. And so Belmarsh is one of them based in southwest, southwest London? Woolwich. near Woolwich Arsenal. So I, I worked there for a few years, which is interesting. <laughs> I also found that working with, because I've also worked with every category of prisoner that exists in the UK, so people on drug rehab, people on short-term programs, people on long. And I think that's where I learned collaboration as well, working on a wing where we had people who were on really long-term drug rehab programs because their stories were horrific. These people had serious, serious uh, drug habits. And we worked in partnership with the prisoners on that unit. The charity that was running the program and us as the prison staff. And we had to find a way as how we could sit down and collaborate and cooperate to make that unit work for them. If we went through the normal processes and say the, and, and stuff, so yes, we had discipline, yes, we had to do that, but we had to look at ways of applying it in a way that would still reach what we were meant to be doing, i.e. rules and regs, but also help support them rehabbing. And finally, so it was massively... Uh, working with multiple stakeholders and collaborating on finding ways forward, which is really interesting as well.
1: And I would argue that you know we go back to trust. I mean, th- those people have to have some kind of trust that you do have some. It, you know, you you want them to to succeed. You want this to work. So so they have to have that trust in you as well if you want them to voluntarily do things like you're saying instead of the authoritarian. You're going to do this because that's the rules and that's the law. And if if you can build that trust, like you're you're saying that you did, then then I think that you're on that right track. And it, it goes back to the the trust piece that that Jeff talked about in the very beginning. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I think trust is the basis of it all. So it's working with yeah. different
0: stakeholders and if you can get an agreement, you're coming from something from a different angle, goes back to what you were talking about, Jeff, and you've got to trust what people are doing, but you've got to go into that collaboration with that empathy. So I've got to understand where you're coming from and you need to understand where I'm coming from and how can we work together to get that common goal? That's right. We need to understand what the common goal is and have that language about purpose okay now i don't I can't bring everything I've got lots of stuff I've got to bring into this it's got to work that i'm there's rules and regs I've got to follow there's stuff you have to follow and they're not mutually exclusive and they don't combat each other so how can we get those to work together in a way that makes sense so you could you could that's a great lego activity by the way. you can go these are my rules and regs and lego there's your rules and regs and lego that's how we can put these Lego pieces together and create this thing that we're trying to do and I think that was that was really interesting sort of 18 months or two years 18 months I think I worked in that unit 18 months of my career really interesting and it's it sort of as I say a lot of what you were talking about different people different perspectives being open with each other empathy sharing what you could giving parts of yourself to get parts back as well so as a leader it's not just about the business and transactions it's about that emotional connection so you've got to be willing to give something of yourself to get something back got to be you're a person the people you're working are people it's about what do you give to yourself and then find out what you're comfortable giving to, your, about to yourself, to other people, and find your boundaries. And then you're comfortable going into those conversations without thinking about it. It becomes more natural.
3: Yeah, I agree. I guess I got a final thought, which for me, there are an awful lot of risks at the moment right and but the risk has always been around forever i think leadership is not savored just for business i think i like to talk about leadership at home i like to talk about leadership in business i like to think about leadership in life and i think that with all of that said i think we are responding strategically to a very interesting phase of life at this moment which needs as we said earlier, Douglas, it needs a high degree of creativity, I think, authenticity, I think, openness, right? But more importantly, a willingness, right? So that willingness to look beyond the obvious in addressing the issues and the threats. But I think with all that said, I think there are, there are opportunities for, for, the, for, for the minority that decide Darwinism, flexibility, change adaptability and more importantly courageous leadership at that point to be able to include others and take them on a journey which will be inclusion but also to better better a better place of growth development and and with empathy you get happiness people are happy people want to be a part of something but they're happy and they've got growth, they've got mindset, they've got attitude, and they've got learnings. And I think all of that is in, incredibly important. Okay, thank you very much,
0: Jeff. Oak, have you got a final sort of roundup that you'd like to finish with?
1: I, I, again, I think th- this has been fantastic, and it, and I agree with everything that's being, being said. I think w- it, we got to get to the, the point where people, you know, as we commission brand new lieutenants out of here, which is our job, the last thing I tell them is go out there and make a difference because leaders make a difference in everybody's in, in, in every day. Leaders have the, the potential to make a difference in the people's lives that they influence in the organization. And I, I think that's the, that's the difference between the average leader and the very good leader is the very good leader goes out there with the attitude that they want to make a difference, a positive difference in people's lives and in the organization every day. You want to do that. And if you, if you enter every day, doing that as a leader, then you're building the trust, you're building the culture and you're actually going to help people. And if you help people, like Jeff said, if they're happy, they're going to do more for you. They're going to, they're going to like being it there in, in your organization and, and it just goes back to that because this is a privilege being a leader is a privilege. And, and I think some leaders have forgotten that, that it is a privilege that you get to lead other people. And so you should make it an, an effort to make a difference in those people's lives, a positive difference every day. Hey, thank you very much. Oak. Douglas.
2: Yeah, No, I think first of all, thanks to, to yourself and Oak and Jeff, for a wonderful and, and really um, thought provoking conversation. I actually just want to continue where Oak left off and, and really, to say that, I think each and every person in the world, during the last two years, I'm sure, and I speak for myself, but I'm sure we all in the same space, has deeply reflected on your life. What makes you happy? What doesn't make you happy? Times when you've been down, and times when you've been up. And I think for me, it's it's made the world, um, whether it's through the great resign and, and 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 things like that. But people want to be happy. We don't. Nobody comes to work to not do well. And so for me, I think we've got to. The silver lining after these last two years, and in many, but one of them I think is that I think people have come with a stronger self-awareness of what makes them happy, what drives them in their life and their purpose, and the opportunity for leadership to seize this and to really harness that energy that comes with that happiness and to align it. And I would sum it up to say is leadership has an opportunity to burn the free fuel of this awareness of deep purpose, on the bedrock of trust, and to be happy, because that's what we want to be. Thank you.
0: Lovely. Thank you very much. I would just like to say, oh, go on, sorry, Jeff, you've come off mute. You're going to say all I would just say. So thank you very much for gents for joining. It has been an absolute honour and a privilege, and the first time I've had three people on. So thank you. So there's me dipping my toe into sort of head talk type territory. So hopefully it was all right. And excuse any mistakes or errors I made on the way. My view on leadership is to, for leadership and trust is two simple questions or two simple things to look at. Trust. You look at the word is trustworthy. It's not trust. It's trustworthy. So my question, and it's what you do every single, in single interaction you have with people, influences that. So my question to leaders when I do some coaching occasionally is to ask a simple question. What are you going to do today to demonstrate you are worthy of somebody's trust?
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. And just to finalize on that, if you, have, if you find somebody, you know, and I think we should be more caring to others. You know, like Douglas said, people have been through a lot in the last 24 months. If you can make one significant change to one person, you've effective positive change, right? And that's surely what leadership is all about, right? With with their people. But we have to reach out to people. We have to care for people. We need more care in society. And I mean, look, when people are down, it's not just about making the next paycheck. It's about supporting, loving, and helping people, okay? through all times when when they're in when they celebrate let's celebrate when they're having a good time but when they're down surely we should be there for our colleagues our friends and the people that really matter to us most and and i think that that's an important role for leadership
0: compassion compassion yeah it's all there all right again lovely thank you very much and thank you very thank much you, everyone. thank you thank you very much for listening
1: thanks scott appreciate it You're welcome.